I was, I was sitting there or standing there with my kids and every song I, I kept saying, oh, the words are really good of this song. Oh, the words are really good of this song. And just really ties into to the names of Jesus that we want to talk about today. I want to read just the first verse of Where Would We Be? One of the songs we sang. You came to search and rescue. In love the Father sent you. Broke through the darkest night. You came to seek and save us. You came to liberate us. Jesus, you heard our cry. Jesus, you heard our cry. Where would we be without your love? As we come to our, our names today, what a, what a wonderful description of why Jesus came. And it was a rescue mission, a rescue mission that we could not handle on our own. Last week, we started by saying who Jesus is matters. If Jesus isn't God, then, then we're wasting our time here. Well, we continue that this week as we continue to look at the names of Jesus that show that he is God, because if Jesus isn't God, then he can't rescue us. And we mentioned that last week. Because we can't rescue ourselves, right? I can't take care of the junk in my life. I can't take care of the sin in my life. I can't be good enough to pay for the sin that I continually commit because of the natural man, because of the sin nature we're born with. And so somehow there had to be an external agent. Somehow there had to be someone else to rescue me. I remember a while back, and I've told some stories of a a Whitney climb that we made, and this particular one, Patrick and I were climbing down, and and he was helping me get down. But about halfway down, this one cliff face that we call the the 99 switchbacks, or torture, one of the two, um, about halfway down, on our way down, I don't know if you remember this, we came across this, this man and this woman, and the man was just curled up on the ground shaking. And, and it's getting dark. We're at the end of the day, and actually the sun had already set. We're at dusk, and it's getting cold. And we stopped for a while to try to help. We couldn't even get this, this guy to stand up. He just couldn't stand up. And, and where this is at is actually in the middle of a cliff face, so it's just very difficult to reach. You're not going to get a helicopter right to him or something. And, and we stopped for a while, gave what supplies we could. We still had another six miles to get down, and so we needed some water ourselves. And um, but we gave some water. I think we gave an emergency blanket to try to, to, to help um, with the cold. And I can remember the feeling of helplessness as we walked away from him. Because we could not help him. I had no strength to help him. There was only two of us. And so we walked away knowing that wasn't going to be from us. We were going to be fortunate to get down ourselves but somehow someone had to come and rescue them. And the best we could say is when we get to the bottom, when we get to base camp, we'll be glad to or we'll inform somebody and let them know that you're here and we'll send somebody up that has the capability, that has the ability to rescue. Now, praise God, as we were going down, we we found out that some other hikers that had been a little faster than us um, had gone down and let people know and a rescue team did come up but it, he had to be rescued. He couldn't do it on his own. We couldn't even help him. And, and I think of that, and I start with that story, because what a picture of the state of mankind. We cannot rescue ourselves. Because of sin, we are destined for hell. Because of sin, this world is screwed up. I mean, you watch the news, you look around us, and this world's a mess. And it needs a rescuer. But we can't do it, because we can't even rescue ourselves. But God intervenes. 
God sends his son, what we sing about in almost every song this morning, to rescue and to save us. This morning, as we look at the names of God or the names of Jesus that show he is God, all of them tie back to that rescue. All of them tie back to his ability to rescue us out of a dark world, to rescue us out of our sin, to make us clean when we can't do that ourselves. Just like on that mountain, there had to be an external agent, uh, uh, someone else come. So we need Jesus. And so let's dig into the names of God. We have a, a couple names and then some I am statements of God that we want to talk about this morning. Some that maybe we think we know what they mean. Some that may, we may be a little surprised. But the first is Son of Man. Son of Man. And this is one of those ones that I thought I knew what Son of Man meant when I first started studying it. Son of Man. It means he's human, right? And, and certainly it could mean Son of Adam and it could mean that he's human, but it means so much more. This, this is one of those names that is packed with so much meaning that, that we can barely unpack it. Son of Man, incidentally, is the name that Jesus used most commonly to refer to himself. It was his favorite name for himself. And so that should make us pay attention. If Jesus is calling himself this, there must be some meaning we want to understand. We want to look at three key passages to understand Son of Man, how it ties in with this, this rescue operation that Jesus embarks on. The first is Matthew chapter 16. And I encourage you to look these up, Matthew 16, Matthew 26, and then we'll turn to Daniel chapter 7. But Matthew chapter 16, if you don't have a Bible today, there should be a black one underneath the seat near you. You can grab one of those. If you don't have one at home, just take it with you. We want you to have God's word. But let's be digging into God's word this morning. Matthew chapter 16, verse 13. And we're going to look at two names together, Son of Man, which you see over here, and Son of God, which you see over here. And in the first two passages in Matthew here, we're going to see both mentioned. But in Matthew 16, we come to the scene where Jesus is coming to the district of Caesarea Philippi. It's up in northern Israel. If you, it's, it's one of the most beautiful spots visually of Israel. And at the time, it was the cesspool of Israel. Because this is where they worshipped the god Pan. There was human sacrifices. The sexuality of their religious practices was beyond compare. I can't even describe it in, in, a, in a sermon. And so Jesus takes his disciples to this the center of disgusting religious practices and proclaims, comes back to Son of Man and Son of God. And so he takes them to the very center of the need for rescue. And we come to this interaction with Peter. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? So Jesus uses this term of himself. Who do people say that that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist. Others say Elijah and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So we see Son of Man and then the declaration by Peter, the Son of God, coupled with Christ, which we know meant um, the Messiah, the Savior. You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. So hold your finger there. Let's also look at Matthew 26, a little bit later in ministry. Matthew 26, verses 63 through 64. And Jesus has now been arrested. He's being interrogated. And we see in verse 63, but Jesus remained silent. And the high priest said to him, 
I adjure you by the living God. Tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. Are you the Messiah, the Son of God? Jesus said to him, You have said so. But I tell you, from now on, you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. And he uses the name Son of Man. Son of Man. But read on there. Look at, look at the response of the Pharisees. So he, he proclaims this about himself. Make sure I'm reading the correct verse here. You will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power and coming on the clouds of heaven. Then the high priest tore his robes and said, He has uttered blasphemy. What further witnesses do we need? You have now heard his blasphemy. What is your judgment? They answered. He deserves death. So whatever Jesus says by the Son of Man, it, it incurs this incredible outburst of, kill him. He's blaspheming. He's taking on the name of God on himself. And so we have these two names, the Son of God and the Son of Man. And like I said, the Son of Man here means more than just he was a human being. More than just he's a descendant of Adam. The Jews would have understood it in light of the Old Testament. And so the third passage that I said we wanted to look at was Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. Daniel chapter 7, verse 13. So flip to the Old Testament. Keep your finger in the Matthew 26 passage. Turn to the Daniel passage. Because all this ties together. Because when Jesus says this to the Jewish leaders, their thought immediately goes to the Old Testament. What does Son of, what does son of Man mean? And in Daniel 7, we see a prophecy, a vision. And the vision is of the throne room of God, another just incredible throne room scene. And specifically, at the second coming of Jesus, when Jesus is going to defeat Satan and set up his earthly kingdom. In Daniel 7, verse 13, we read, I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven, there came one like a son of man. And we see the first phrase where that's used to refer to Jesus in the Bible. One like a son of man. And he came to the ancient of days, who is God the Father, and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. Isn't that just a wonderful description? And we see this description of Jesus. And, and incidentally, did you notice some of the same wording that Jesus used to the Jewish leaders? When Jesus said, I tell you, from now on you will see the Son of Man seated at the right hand of power. He's referring to the Ancient of Days and this dominion and glory in the kingdom. But then in case they missed it, he says, and coming on clouds of heaven. Did you catch Daniel 7.13? And behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like the Son of Man. And so the Jews, and, and we need to understand this because we need to read it as they would have heard it, they would have immediately jumped to Daniel 7 and that he's not saying he's just an ordinary man. He is saying he is God. He is saying he is divine. Catch the Daniel 7 passage. One lot like a Son of Man, the deity becoming human, incarnated as a man. And he came to the Ancient of Days, God the Father, was presented. And then you see just what the name Son of Man means. He was given dominion and glory and a kingdom. Now, this, these are pretty awesome gifts. 
At Christmas, you know, some of you, you, some of you wish for, you know, a new car. That's nothing. How about an everlasting dominion, a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him? His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. And so when we think son of man, we need to think deity. We need to think power. We need to think authority. Jesus was the bringer of the kingdom. The one that would set up the everlasting kingdom. All dominion and all authority rests on him. So if we had to summarize Son of Man, and that's just a few of the verses. Um, Jesus called himself this 82 different times. But the, the name Son of Man referred to Jesus as God incarnated as a man, coming with authority to accomplish his earthly mission. Catch all that? You know, chew on that a little bit. I think I put that in your notes. Son of Man means that Jesus as God incarnated as man, coming with authority to accomplish his earthly mission. He was coming from heaven to earth with a job to do, with a rescue to accomplish. One author said, if you want an easy way to remember Son of Man, whenever you see it in Scripture, think heavenly origin, earthly mission. Heavenly origin, earthly mission. That's a little easier than the whole sentence, right? And it's a reminder every time we see that, that this is God who is coming to rescue us because we can't. And that is that blows my mind. That's what we sang about this morning. God, Almighty, Creator of all things, the Ancient of Days, sent His Son on a mission of sacrifice to be tortured, to be crucified, to be resurrected to bear our sin on His shoulders, and then eventually to come again. All of that is wrapped up in the name Son of Man. Like I said, I, I think this is, this is one of the names that encapsulates more than almost any other name. I, I was trying to think of an example of this, and I just couldn't come up with a good example of this. Uh, you know, my kids sometimes call me Daddy Pastor, and, and that's, that's just a tiny little example of it because that... That refers to so much, right? I'm their dad, but I'm also their pastor. It refers to, to my, my ministry here. But the, the daddy refers to this personal relationship. And so it has all these little things. That's nothing compared to son of man. Because it's God, a heavenly being, whose sphere of operation is on earth, who comes to earth because we need to be rescued. And so it refers to all of that. There's a tension here in this name. There's a tension of God Almighty becoming a a puny man. Sorry, guys. We're puny. And and God Almighty becomes this puny man so that he can rescue and do what we can't, so he can sacrifice his life. And there's a tension here. How can that match with God the Father in his greatness and what he does on earth? I think if sometimes you see on TV the, the, the images of like the pro football players going to children's hospitals. You know, they're, they're always showing things like that, especially if they need to rehab their image or something like that. And, and they're coming in and these big burly guys are trying to, to, to care for these, these frail children. And it's a wonderful picture. But that's a little bit of how I picture Son of Man. God Almighty, who cannot be contained, choosing to be incarnated in our flesh so He could save us. 
couple of, of, I just want to read some verses that give us a sense of the Son of Man and how Jesus used it. And if we think of that heavenly origin, earthly mission, and then I would add authority to that, those are three categories I've put in your notes. And I want to read some of the verses under each of those categories. Just to open our eyes, my prayer with some of the names of God is it just changes how we read Scripture. So instead of Son of Man, oh, that's just the name of Jesus. I want us to think heavenly being incarnated into to human form so he could rescue us. So the first part, Jesus is God. His heavenly origin. John 3. Let me just read some of thir- verses 13 through 16. No one has ascended into heaven except he who descended from heaven, the Son of Man. And, and so Jesus uses the title Son of Man there to refer to him descending from heaven. He's a heavenly being that chose to come to earth. And as Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, so must the Son of Man be lifted up. That's the mission. So we have heavenly origin, earthly mission in that verse. That whoever believes in him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. John six sixty two. Then what if you were to see the Son of Man ascending to where he was before? And again, Jesus is using that term to refer to, I was in heaven. That was my dwelling before. Now I've come to rescue you. So Son of Man just has all of that in its meaning. Think of his mission. And his mission, like I said, uh, encompasses his ministry, his servanthood on earth. It encompasses his, his brutal crucifixion, his resurrection, his second coming. Listen to these verses. For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost. Luke 19.10 Matthew 8.20, And Jesus said to him, Foxes have holes and birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Speaking of his itinerant ministry. Matthew 12.40, For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so will the Son of Man be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. Mark 10.33, Saying, See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. Mark 10.45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. See, over and over and over, Son of Man is used to say, God came from heaven to rescue us, to sacrifice himself so we can live. What an incredible name, isn't it? Every time we see Son of Man... We should be grateful for a rescue we don't deserve and we couldn't do. Finally, Son of Man is used with authority, as it is in Daniel 7. In Matthew 9, we get the story of the the paralytic where his friends brought him and dug through the roof and lowered him down. And catch how Son of Man is used. But Jesus, knowing their thoughts, and he had said, your sins are forgiven, he said, why do you think evil in your hearts? For which is easier to say, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He then said to the paralytic, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he's talking about the Son of Man having authority to forgive sins. That's his mission. That's the rescue. God, in human form, did what we couldn't do. 
Oh, that deserves worship. One of the questions that this should bring up in our mind is why? Why would God do this? Why would this name is full of sacrifice? This name is full of leaving his heavenly home to take on this? Why? And the John 3 passage that we mentioned that talks about the Son of Man and his sacrifice gives us the why. Because it says, For God so loved the world. See, our sin separates us from God. Our sin destroys any chance at relationship with God. We have no closeness, no communion with God. God loves us so much that He wants that intimate communion. He wants to be close to us. He loves it when we get up in the morning and spend time in prayer. He loves it when we open His Word and read His love letter to us. He enjoys that. And we blew it with sin and we tore that apart and we made that impossible. And because He loved us, He called Himself the Son of Man. That He was willing to leave the glory of heaven, come to earth, be brutally crucified. So if we believe on him, we can have a restored relationship. That's what son of man means. Oh, it's a rich name. And it should remind us of his sacrifice, remind us of who he is, that Jesus is God, and remind us of his love for us. What implications can we get out of this? And there's a whole bunch. I just have three listed there. The first is we should be following his example of humility and servanthood. If God Almighty, if Jesus was willing to become the Son of Man, to be the Son of Man, then how much more should we serve one another? How much more should we approach life in a humble way? We've got nothing to be proud of. The guy that was rescued off the side of the cliff, he probably didn't come down and say, I am such a great climber. I'm awesome. That was an awesome hike. No, what did he probably do? Thank you to the rescuers. My, I, I owe you my life. Do we have that kind of humility and a servant's attitude? Second implication there, which, which has just been hitting me in the face, we need to ache for the lost and be on mission. Ache for the lost. If Jesus is the Son of Man and was willing to do this for us, and we're to have the same mind in us as that of Christ Jesus, do we ache for the lost? I think I posted something in Facebook this week that, that talked about aching for the lost. And, and if I haven't experienced the grace of God, how can I ache for the lost? This was Jesus' heart, God's heart. It should be mine too. And the last implication there is we're to serve the Son of Man. Remember the Daniel passage? All authority is given to Him. All people will bow down to Him. Live for that everlasting kingdom. Serve the Son of Man. This morning, don't turn your back on the gift of His sacrifice, on the rescue mission. Don't turn your back that Jesus as God gave up his life so we can be in relationship with him. Because to turn our back and ignore that is to turn our back on the greatest act of love that will ever happen. Serve the Son of Man. Follow him.
be in relationship with him. The next name on your list, which is also in those passages, the Son of God. So Son of Man, heavenly origin, earthly mission with all authority. The Son of God really primarily refers to the deity of Jesus. When people heard the Son of God, they would have thought, okay, this is God. This is God in the fullest sense. And in fact, they would have tied Messiahship with it, that He's the Savior, that this is God come to save us. And so you see that in in those passages when Jesus asks Peter, who do people say that the Son of Man is? When He responds, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, He's tying Messiah with Son of God, right? And He's starting to get it. Doesn't fully get it yet, as as you know when we study through the Gospels, But this is like the first time the light bulb starts to go on. And it's like, yes, you finally are getting that this is God come to save us. And so really, Son of God has many of the same meanings as Son of Man, but stresses more the deity of God. His work as the promised Messiah. In the Matthew 26 passage, when the, the, the religious leaders said, I adjure you by the living God, tell us if you are the Christ, the Son of God. They were saying, are you claiming to be God? And then as we read, Jesus said, yes, you've said it so, but he ups the ante. He doesn't just claim to be God, but a Son of Man, he claims to have all authority and that he's come to rescue, and that's why they want to stone him or crucify him, because he is directly claiming to be God. John twenty thirty one says, But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So Son of God just affirms that he is God himself. Think of a couple things about sonship here because there's a couple different things we can unpack from this title. Sonship really has two ideas, one of obedience and the other of oneness. Those are the two things in your notes there. Obedience refers to that Jesus lived a life in perfect sonship relationship with the Father. He submitted to the Father in, in perfect submission, came under His will. In Matthew twelve fifty. For whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. Whereas that doesn't say Son of God, Jesus is referring to God the Father as Father, which implies that same relationship. He's saying we're we're here to do His will. As you read through the Gospels, look for all the times Jesus calls God the Father, Father. All of that refers comes back to Son of God. I think of Gethsemane when Jesus fell on His face and said, "My Father," referring to that Father-Son relationship. My Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but as you will. But the other aspect of sonship there is that of oneness. And the name Son of God shows oneness with the Father, a personal intimacy with the Father. It doesn't mean that Jesus was created or came later. It doesn't mean inferiority. In fact, we have Jesus' statements in John 10.30, I and the Father are one. In John 17.11, And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world. And I am coming to you, Holy Father. Keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. 
And so Son, Son of God also reminds us that Jesus is co-eternal with God. He's co-equal with God. He is part of the Trinity. He is God. There is no question by the title. Some, and I was even reading this week, some say, well, Jesus never claimed to be God. Have you read the Bible? That's the, the silliest, I'll, I'll say it, the stupidest thing you could say. Because it's filled with every title, with every name. They wouldn't be trying to stone him and crucify him if he wasn't claiming to be God. You don't get the free pass that says he was a good teacher and never claimed to be God. He claimed to be God and we have to deal with that statement. The demons and Satan acknowledged that Son of God meant his, his deity. In Luke 4, 3, as, as one of this demon-possessed came to him, the devil said to him, if, or no, I'm sorry, the temptation of Christ. The devil said to him, if you are the son of God, command this stone to become bread. He used that a couple times. He's not questioning whether he's the son of God. He's using that as an argument to tempt him. It's better to read that since you are the son of God, fix your hunger problem. Turn this stone into bread. Let's eat. It's going to be good bread if you're the son of God. Satan recognized son of God meant that Jesus was God. The demon in Mark 5, crying out with a loud voice, he said, What have you to do with me, Jesus, Son of the Most High God? I adjure you by God, do not torment me. Because his very presence, the deity of his presence, just the the demons couldn't even tolerate. They couldn't stand. And they acknowledged that as Son of God, he has the authority and deity of God. Because he is God. And finally, his sonship was proven by the resurrection. In Romans 1.4, as Paul is arguing about who Christ is and his, his death on the cross brought salvation and redemption, we read, and, and he was declared to be the Son of God in power according to the Spirit of holiness by his resurrection from the dead, Jesus Christ our Lord. Son of man, heavenly origins, earthly mission. It's about the rescue. Son of God, reminds us in in incredible ways of the deity of Christ. He is God. When I think of what we do with that, what difference does that make? I I come back to, to, it really demands a response, what we were just saying. It demands a response of either rebellious idolatry, where I'm going to put myself first, or submissive worship, of saying, you are God, I give my life to you. The fact that Jesus is Son of God does not allow any middle ground. And I hope this steps on some of our toes this morning. I can't pretend to be a Christian. I can't pretend that that Jesus is the Son of God and not have fruit that shows that and not act that way. Either He is or He isn't. Either I give myself to Him and submit to Him and let Him rule in my life, or I don't playing the part of Christianity, saying I believe in God, and and not letting Him affect my life is not Christianity. It's a facade that makes us think we're saved because we're on our way to hell. And that should be sobering. See, if Jesus is the Son of God, I have to either accept that or deny that. I can't be ambivalent to that. Accepting it is more than an intellectual assent to that. 
It means I will submit to Him. I will worship Him. I will give my life to Him. This morning, maybe there's some here that have never seen Christ's death on the cross as a rescue, that have never seen that as the answer for the junk that's in this world and the junk that's in my life. And I challenge you this morning, come to Christ. Believe on Him. Give your life to Him. Because He is the only one that can rescue. You can be as good as you want this week. You can come to church 25 times. Well, we're not open 25 times, but you can go to 25 different churches and feel really spiritual this week. And it won't make a difference if you're not sold out for God. He's after our hearts. He's after a submission to Him, giving our lives to Him. As we go through our week, we need to evaluate Am I in rebellion or am I in submission? It's one of the two. The beauty is the Son of Man, the Son of God, loves us so much to say, believe in me and that all changes. In this moment, right now. Don't have to work for it. It's by His work, by His grace. Just come to Him. Every song we sang this morning was about that. It's my heart that we are sold out for God and not playing Christianity. If we're playing Christianity, it's just such a poor reflection of what a full life in Christ can be. This morning I want to end and move from Son of Man and Son of God to some of Christ's statements about Himself, Jesus' statements. And if you remember when we talked about God the Father, we talked about Yahweh, as, as one of our primary names of God the Father, and it comes from Exodus chapter 3, where, where God says, I am. What, what do you call me? I am. And, and Yahweh is a, a form of that, that He is the self-existent God. He has always been. But He's the covenant-keeping, faithful God who is always there for us. And Jesus proclaimed that He is the I am. He is Yahweh. And we looked at that in John eight fifty eight. But throughout John, and I just want to walk through these quickly, Jesus makes seven other Yahweh statements. Seven other statements that say, I am. And these, these are just rich for me too, because they, in his own words, who was Jesus? He was God, but he came to do these things. The first is in John 6, 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. And you can underline the word I am there because that's the same construct as, as Yahweh in the Hebrew. This is what they, their construct in Greek. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. And some of these things are so rich with things that we just miss because we think bread of life, okay, I like to eat. You know, maybe it could have been lasagna of life, but okay, this is pretty good. Um, and, and so he brings life. But to the Jews, keep in mind, one of the things they were looking for in the Messiah is someone that would restore, be a prophet as Moses was, someone that would bring manna to the land again, someone that would bring bread to his people. Bethlehem, incidentally, it, it, it's, it's um, comprised of two words, bet lechem, house of bread. And so even where Jesus was born meant bread. And so when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, that would have been this other way of saying, I'm the Messiah. But he's the bread of life. 
You see that in verse 48, 51 there. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness. Jesus makes the connection. And they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. And that's the bread we celebrate in communion, reminding us of his body that was given for us. Jesus is the true source of life. The gospel, what he did on the cross, is the true source of life. It is the only answer for all that's dead in this world. For the stuff right now in your life that you don't even know if you can handle, Jesus is the only answer. He's the only way to redeem that, to bring life to that. Whether it be work situations or marriage situations or family situations or health situations, this world is a dead and dying world, isn't it? Jesus is the bread of life. I am the bread of life. Hunger for him. He's the only bread that satisfies Everything else we eat, we always want more of. Every other solution we have in this world, we just want more of because nothing satisfies except Christ. Second I am statement of Jesus, I am the light of the world. We sang about that this morning. I am the light of the world. John eight twelve. this is right after dealing with the woman caught in adultery that the, the Pharisees brought to him and he said, okay, whoever's without sin, throw the first stone. The very next verse after that story is 8.12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. In Isaiah, we had the prophecy, the people who walked in darkness have seen a great light. Those who dwelt in a land of deep darkness, on them has light shone. And think about what light gives. Light gives direction. And Jesus gives direction. Light exposes sin, and the truth of Jesus exposes the junk and sin in our lives. The studying, though, there's, there's another aspect of this statement that is just really cool. And, and, you know, for those of you that are history geeks, you'll love this. Everyone else, just bear with me. Um, one of the things is when Jesus said this, this was in the middle of the Feast of Tabernacles, Okay. And we haven't studied that that much on Sunday morning. But in the Feast of Tabernacles, they're all coming to Jerusalem. And one of the things that they had on the first night and in some successive nights is they had a ceremony called the illumination of the temple. And they would take in, in the court of women, actually, the outer court there, they would take these four giant lampstands and put these bowls on top of the lampstands. And this is really cool. I like light and I like fire, so this is really cool. Each of these bowls had about 65 liters of oil in it, okay? So that gives you an idea of just the scope of this. And at night, they would light them on fire to remember the pillar of fire and how Jesus led them. And it said, and I'll read some of what was in the Mishnah about this. There were golden candlesticks there with four golden bowls on the top of them and four ladders to each candlestick. And four youths of the priestly stock and in their hands jars of oil holding 120 logs, which they poured into all the bowls. They made wicks from the worn out drawers and girdles of the priests. And with them, they set the candlesticks alight. And there was not a courtyard in Jerusalem that did not reflect the light of the Bet Hashabuah. Not a court didn't reflect. This was, this was bright stuff. It lit up the temple. It lit up the, the city around the temple. 
They would celebrate then. Men of piety and good works used to dance before them with burning torches in their hands, singing songs and praises, and countless Levites played on harps, lyres, cymbals, and trumpets, and instruments of music. What's interesting is they would often leave the main one unlit until the last night to remind them that the Messiah was coming. And Jesus is in that court the next morning, and he says, I am the light of the world. Isn't that cool? He pr- I-, I can picture him pointing to one of the candlesticks that's right behind him, one of these giant bowls. I'm this light. Follow me. It's a light that gives life. He couldn't have been more clear. He is still the light. He still wants to drive darkness out of our lives. He still wants to lead us to salvation. And he wants us to be the light of the world in his name, ambassadors for the king. We need to move on. I'm the bread of life. I'm the light of the world. John 10, verse 7 and 7 through 14 gives us the next two. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. I am the door. I am the good shepherd. So Jesus again said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. All who came before me are thieves and robbers, but the sheep did not listen to them. So Jesus again said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, I am the door of the sheep. He goes on to say, verse 11, I am the good shepherd. The good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. And if you remember door, and we talked about this, when they were um, shepherding sheep out in the fields, they would have these little rock enclosures that would go all the way around and they'd leave a doorway there, but there was no door. Don, I think we have a picture of that. So I don't know if you can tell, but this is sort of a, a, a rocky enclosure. And up in the front here is a door. And they would leave this door open. That's how the sheep would get in and out. And at night, the shepherd would sleep across the doorway. It actually is true. It's not just a myth. You know, sometimes there's biblical myths, but would sleep across the doorway. One, um, one teacher of Old Testament was talking with a shepherd in Israel one time and um, and they were, the shepherd was showing him these things, and it consisted of four walls with a way in. And Sir George said to him, that, that's where they go at night? Yes, said the shepherd. And when they are in there, they are perfectly safe. And the teacher, the Old Testament scholar said, but there's no door. And the shepherd said, I am the door. He wasn't a Christian, and he wasn't speaking the language of the New Testament. He was just speaking from a shepherd's standpoint. And, and, and the, the scholar said, well, what do you mean by door? And And the shepherd said, well, when the light's gone and all the sheep are inside, I I lay on the open space. And no sheep ever goes out because my body's across it. And no wolf ever comes in unless he crosses my body. I am the door. What a great picture of what God does for us. He leads us into salvation, into safety. And then he is the door that protects. Oh, what a great picture. He is the good shepherd, Yahweh Rohi cares for us, feeds us, protects us, leads us. He's in this personal trusting relationship with us because he says the sheep hear his voice and they know him. Fifth, I am name. I am the resurrection and the life. John eleven twenty five. Jesus said, and, and this, this is the scene is Lazarus has just died. Jesus comes to Martha and he said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. And everyone who lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And what a great reminder 
that this isn't all there is. There's life after this life. We may die here. Our loved ones may die here. But if they are believers in Jesus Christ, this isn't it. They will live for eternity with the Son of Man and the Son of God. What an amazing thing. Then the last two happened the night before the crucifixion. Up in the upper room, Jesus is talking to the disciples. John fourteen six, familiar passage, but it's an I am passage. We miss that. It's a Yahweh passage of Christ. He says, I am the way or the road to get to salvation, the road to get to God. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. There is no other way to salvation. Jesus is God. He's the Son of Man come to rescue us and give us life. And finally, in the next chapter, John 15, verse 1, I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. I am the vine, you are the branches, in verse 5, whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. I love this picture. Because if you picture a vine and you picture the the trunk of that vine, all sustenance, all life comes through that trunk, comes through the the source of that. It, It supports the branches. It supports the fruit. You take that trunk away and there is no life. There is no support. There's nothing. We're called to abide in the vine, the true vine, the Son of Man, the Son of God, to follow Him, to love being with Him, to enjoy being with Him. I'd like to stand and sing Marvelous Light one more time because out of Marvelous Light you get like four or five of these I Am statements. And we, we need to end in worship and respond to our God. But today, if you've never responded to Him, make it today. Come to Him. Say, I accept your salvation. I accept the life you want to give me. I will follow you. God, our Father, praise you that you are the light of the world you are the way the truth and the life you are the bread of life lord that you are the door the shepherd lord that you're the son of man and the son of god that you have come to earth to do what we couldn't and rescue us lord lord help us to worship you this week help us to to find any ways that we are not giving our life to you because you gave all for us Lord, may we be a people sold out, excited about being in relationship with you, aching for others to be in relationship with you, Lord, here to do your work. We praise you and worship you, God, in Jesus' name, amen.